0: Hello, church. Can you hear me? Can I get a wave for, from anybody who can hear me? All right, very good. Wouldn't wouldn't you know that just as I'm about to come on and start preaching, my Zoom freezes. At least my whole computer didn't crash. We'll see if that happens. If by chance uh, I do happen to freeze on your screen and something goes horribly wrong, just pray, and then maybe Andy Kim will come in and play a song for us. You never know. Anyway, it is really good to see you guys this morning. Uh, Again, I think I say this every week I'm up here. I wish I could be with you right now in person, but it's good to be with you even virtually right now. Um, Well, since most of you have actually uh, been here every week uh, since Easter uh, and since we've been doing this, but in that time frame since Easter, we have been uh, looking at how we pursue Christ together. That's the name of this series that we're in, Pursuing Christ Together. And in particular, we've been looking at how we need to be personally transformed by him in some certain ways as a part of that pursuit uh, of Jesus together as a whole church community. Well, today, the subject that we're going to look at uh, for our personal transformation is the subject of generosity. I think that... The moment that we're finding ourselves in right now, uh, as a city, as a nation, as a world, um, in this moment, generosity may be among the most important things that we could uh, experience from other people, and at the same time, it's one of the most important things we could show to the world as followers of Jesus. When a virus has infected millions and millions of people, Uh, and it's thrown normal life into disarray, generosity is one of the most significant ways that we could give comfort and hope to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends, just anybody who's out there in the world. For example, uh, some of you may be well aware of this and watching the videos, but uh, there's an actor named John Krasinski. He got famous on the TV show The Office. And he's been hosting a weekly online news show uh, that he has been calling Some Good News. It's the SGN Network. It is so worth watching uh, if you haven't seen it before. His stories about regular people doing just regular or sometimes extraordinary things to care for others uh, during this pandemic, they're just amazing. And some of them are real tear-jerkers. But then there are these stories or these um, activities Actions, I guess, that John Krasinski himself puts together for people, and some of them are just over the top. For example, he hosted a virtual prom for high school seniors who have had to lose and miss their prom altogether. He uh, gave a hospital nursing staff Red Sox tickets for life, which was amazing. He got licensed in the state of Maryland to perform weddings. And then he officiated a surprise wedding for a couple whose wedding had been called off because of the coronavirus. No, I I didn't cry at all when I saw that happen. No. Well, stories like that at the very least bring smiles to our faces. But there are other stories about generosity that honestly are a little bit more sobering even though they're about generosity. I think of the people who are working in jobs right now where they have to be generous with their own lives in order to provide what the rest of us need to live right now. I think especially of nurses, doctors, healthcare workers of all kinds. I think of police officers, grocery store workers, delivery drivers. I think of teachers too. And even though they might not be physically present with our kids right now, they are generously giving their time, their creativity, their energy, so that our kids can keep learning. The generosity of giving a virtual prom to high school students, you know, that's heartwarming. The generosity with people's lives, that's breathtaking. And so that kind of raises a question for us, I think. What does God view as true generosity? Now, I'm not suggesting that any of those examples I just gave lacks generosity in some way. I think God is pleased with every one of those things. But at the same time, when we talk about being personally transformed as followers of Christ, and as we think about generosity as an aspect of that transformation, what does that look like? What is true generosity in God's eyes? Well, we are going to approach that question today uh, through a passage that many of us are very familiar with. Um, It's pretty straightforward to understand as a passage, but what it means for our lives today, that can be a little bit more challenging. On the one hand, uh, it's tempting to look at this passage as sort of a bygone golden age of the church. And if only we could get back to it, then we'd really be in good shape. We'd be doing what the, we'd be who the church was meant to be. But on the other hand, it presents us with such extreme way of life that if we were to take it seriously, it could have drastic implications for how we live our lives. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 4 with me. If you don't have one, it's okay. You can follow along on the screen. I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. All right. Well, to start off, let's just make some observations about this passage. Uh, First, just in the context of the book of Acts, Uh, just to see, because it's helpful to see what's going on in the book right around the passage that we're looking at. Immediately before this passage, in uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, we see the church praying for boldness to preach the gospel and for God to continue to work around them and in them and through them with great power. That's what they're asking for. And then immediately in that passage, God responds with an earthquake in the place where they're meeting, and then by filling them up with the Holy Spirit and empowering them to speak his words, he he answers their prayers immediately. Well, then we move into our passage, verses 32 to 37, which imply that God's continued answer to prayer is in the unity and the generosity of the church. Everything they've been praying for, for power and boldness to, to proclaim the gospel, now it's showing up in the way that they live their lives together. And just as we heard when I read the passage there, a man named Barnabas is held up as a just a stellar example of that generosity. But right after this passage in verses uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, we get a counter example, sort of the anti-Barnabas. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira are this husband and wife uh, in the church there in Jerusalem who try to mimic the generosity of Barnabas. But they're just doing it for show and they hold back some of what they could give. And so because of their deceitfulness and the danger that that poses to the newborn church, God strikes them dead. This is a really serious story that we read. The people are understandably shaken by that, but as a result of what they experience, their reverence for God grows. Their, their healthy, holy fear of him grows. After that, the apostles continue preaching boldly and performing miracles that show God's power, and the church is just growing like crazy. It's spreading like wildfire. Now, we also need to see how closely the church's generosity is connected to its witness, to its, its ability and its, its energy, its fervency to tell the world about who Jesus is. Today's passage is really similar to another one that you might be thinking of now if you're familiar with the book of Acts. Way back in chapter 2, in verses 42 to 47 of chapter 2, there there is just an amazing picture of the unity and the love of the church that's seen in its generosity toward one another, and that's tied very directly to the explosive growth that the church goes through in its early days. And so in both chapter 2 and chapter 4, the apostles preaching about Jesus, and the generous character of the church, they're directly connected to new people believing in the gospel. It's also kind of helpful to see, just in terms of context, how there's really important Old Testament background behind this passage in Acts chapter 4. Back in Deuteronomy chapters 14 and 15, that that's a significant portion of the Mosaic law that dealt with expectations for giving money and for supporting people who are in need. Now, we don't have time to go into those passages this this morning, but I really do encourage you to flip back there maybe some point later today and read those chapters, Deuteronomy 14 and 15, and then read Acts chapter 4 as the fulfillment of those passages through the power of the resurrected Jesus working through his church. It's really amazing to read them together. So the story of the early church then is the story of people being in awe of God's generosity toward them, freely giving them what was his, freely giving them forgiveness, freely giving them life, freely giving them his own son, Jesus. And so that in turn makes them generous toward other people. They show the generosity that they've been shown. So in their view, in the view of the early church, The gospel was a message not only of sins being forgiven, not only of God's kingdom coming, (coughs) but it's a message of generosity, lavish, extravagant, reckless generosity. And a message about generosity is not one that can only be told with words. It's a message that has to be shown. And the way that it's shown is by being generous as God is generous. So that's where we're going to go from here today. trying to pull that meaning out of Acts chapter 4 here. What exactly is generosity according to the gospel? What is the kind of generosity that we are being transformed by Christ to demonstrate? Well, we can't get into all of that. It's just too big to define in a single sermon here, and that's partly because there are so many other passages in the Bible beyond Acts chapter 4 that have something important to say about it. But at the very least, I think there are three qualities of true generosity that we can see in Acts chapter four. If our, our giving, whether that's giving our money, our time, our skills, our affection, our attention to people, whatever it is we're giving, if it lacks any one of these three qualities, at best, all we're doing is giving. And without demeaning any kind of gift that any person might give, the examples that I've already shared, we can still say that missing any one of these three qualities means that we're somehow falling short of the invitation to generosity that God is holding out for us. The first of these qualities of true generosity is sacrifice. True generosity is sacrificial. Now, obviously, I do not mean sacrificial in the sense of Old Testament ritual. Um, Generosity does not mean slaughtering animals. Uh, In Jesus, all of the sacrifices that the Old Testament talks about, those have been completed. We do not contribute anything to that sacrificial system that takes away our sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of that 100%. Our generous acts cannot earn God's grace. Our generous acts... Are a response to the grace that God has already shown us. Now, I can't define precisely what level of giving counts as sacrificial. That may even be different for each individual person. I certainly don't mean that small gifts and small actions aren't generous, that they don't count as generosity somehow. But taken as a whole, a pa- or, I'm sorry, a practice or a posture of giving is sacrificial when it leads me to do without something for the sake of another person. Let me say that again. The practice or the posture of giving can be called sacrificial when it leads me to do without something for the sake of another person. Sacrificial generosity doesn't mean that I empty all of my resources to the point of impoverishment. But it could mean that I feel the pinch of that giving somehow, whether it's financial, emotional giving, or in some other way. The second quality of true generosity is just as important. True generosity is joyful. Look at how the believers are described in Acts chapter 4 here. They were one in heart and mind. They shared everything they had. Their giving is voluntary. It's not coerced. It's a very similar situation in Acts chapter 2 that I mentioned earlier. Incidentally, I was the the very blessed and happy recipient of a joyful gift like this uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of you guys, uh, a TCBC family, decided on a whim to make for me a recipe that they had found in a cookbook somewhere because it sounded like something that I would like. It was a pumpkin cake with caramel drizzle and cream cheese frosting. Basically, it was a diabetic coma on a plate, and it was amazing. Well, in fact, this, this family thought that it sounded so much like me that the kids in this family named it Pastor Steve. Well, out of the blue, and for no particular reason, Pastor Steve showed up on my porch. And I did share some of Pastor Steve with my family, but I probably ate about 75% of Pastor Steve all by myself. The point is that this was, this was just a really thoughtful and beautiful gift that was given with such willing joy. There was no sense of owing it to me in any way, or giving it grudgingly or half-heartedly. And honestly, the act itself and the heart behind it and the little card that came with it, they were probably even better than the dessert itself. Now, the third quality of true generosity that we see in Acts 4 is that it's God, or I it's God directed, might be another way to say that. At its heart, our giving is truly generous when, first and foremost, it's given to God. You can see how, or you, you can see this in Acts chapter four, uh, as these church members are donating the sales of land and houses that they have. It says that they laid it at the apostles' feet, and then from there, it was distributed to anyone who had need. By by laying it at the apostles' feet, that was a way of saying we are bringing this to God not thinking that the apostles are god but they're the the spiritual leaders and the representatives of him for the early church there. True generosity is really an act of worship and an act of offering on our part. No matter what we're giving, money, time, attention, skills, whatever, and no matter who the direct recipient of our giving is, we first give that gift in our hearts to the Lord. Sacrificial joyful, and Godward. If our giving is missing any one of those qualities, we're somehow falling short of the true generosity that Jesus wants to transform us into. If our giving is struggling with being sacrificial, maybe we're really struggling with being too comfortable with the things that we have. We need to be surrounded by those things and we're not willing to give them up. If our giving isn't joyful, maybe we're coming at giving from too much of a duty-bound perspective, or we're driven by compulsions to give that we're not really owning up to in some way. Or if our giving is not fundamentally to God, we need to ask what or who we're really worshiping. We might be the greatest philanthropist in history, but we are in danger of gaining the world by forfe- but forfeiting our souls if we miss any one of those things. Now, I will be the first person to attest that I fall short of true generosity a lot of the time. A lot of the time, in different circumstances, each one of those qualities—sacrifice, uh, joyfulness, Godwardness—each of those qualities can suffer for me in very real ways. What is it? that makes true generosity difficult? What are the obstacles that we, that we face to having true generosity? Well, about 10 years ago, there was a sociologist uh, by the name of Christian Smith who did this huge study on financial giving among Christians in America. And for Christians overall in North America, actually, <clears throat> he found shockingly little giving relative to their ability to give, to the resources and the potential that they had. And so he asked the question, why? What is holding that giving back? Well, he wrote a whole book about it, and I'm just summarizing his summary. But basically, he saw three broad categories of obstacles to true generosity. The first was that even though, the first is an obstacle that even though we've heard about its dangers from really everywhere, not just from the church, we hear about it even from the world around us, consumerism is just, in the air and in the water of our culture. And it's a huge obstacle to generosity. Every good impulse that we have to be generous uh, with our resources, especially with our money, inevitably it runs up against opposing impulses from our culture to spend or to borrow or to acquire or to consume and then discard and then spend more money for ourselves. And some of that is the structure of the economy that we live in, just the American economy. If people don't buy stuff, the economy shrinks. And we're seeing the most extreme example of that right now that we've seen in generations. Now, I'm not arguing right now for for or against any kind of economic system. I would not have enough of a clue to know what I'm talking about to do that. But I will say that both capitalism And socialism, two big competing economic ideas, they have a really hard time standing up next to the beautiful picture that we see in Acts 4. We see in in this chapter a society where people are able to own private property. They're not coerced by the government into giving it up in some way, but they share it sacrificially, liberally, for the good of their neighbor they're not thinking of it as as their own. They think of it as having something in common with everybody else. It's a resource God has given them. In any case, our culture trains us to be consumers, and that is a huge obstacle to generosity. All right, the second category of obstacle to our generosity is the church itself. Our culture might teach us consumerism, but the church is often very guilty of teaching us not enough about money in any way at all. You know, sometimes pastors, spiritual leaders, we can shy away from talking about money because it's just uncomfortable. But even when churches do talk about money, the expectations for what giving looks like can be very unclear, even unclear expectations about the methods and the mechanisms for how to give. Now at TCBC, I think this particular obstacle Is a mixed bag for us. I think it's mostly positive. We don't talk about money perfectly. We definitely don't. But I think we talk about it as being part of our discipleship. Money is something that is a part of our following Jesus. We've preached sermon series about it. When it comes up in a text that doesn't have any, we're not in a money sermon series. We address it when it's there. We talk about it in membership classes. Our stewardship team does an amazing job of managing our resources really well and not in a protective way they're thinking about the mission of the church and every sunday we are trying to make sure that you hear that the offerings that we bring are first and foremost an offering of our whole lives to god and that includes our finances and the finances we give in an offering are given to the mission of the church god's doing something with these these things but still we don't want to pretend that we're immune to the problem of unclear expectations about giving. Wherever that exists at TCBC, it is an obstacle to our generosity. Now, the last category of an obstacle recognizes that whether lessons come from out there in the culture or whether they're coming from in here in the church, or whether it's coming from our own internal wiring, A heart that clings to the wrong lessons that we learn about generosity is an obstacle too. Our own hearts present obstacles. Dr. Smith, that sociologist, he points to a few particular ideas in that big study that he did. There can be a real privacy and individualism that we have about money that keeps us from honest and transparent conversations with one another. Our finances can feel like a really taboo topic. That's just not something I want to bring into open conversation with other people. And then individualism can creep in. And that starts to make us think that what I do with my money, that's, that's my business. That's, nobody else has to have a say in that. Both of those attitudes are so foreign to the church that we see in Acts chapter 4. Privacy and individualism are just not on their radar screen. There's another trend that Dr. Smith points out. In in the North American church, there can be this strange preference for unplanned, spontaneous giving, as though being spirit-led in the moment when we're giving is what makes generosity authentic or real in some way. Well, the Holy Spirit can certainly lead us unexpectedly, even in a moment, to respond to unforeseen things, but the church in Acts chapter four was obviously thinking and planning about what and how to give. They weren't doing just spur of the moment things. And therefore we shouldn't feel like we're limited to that, or that's even the main way that we should be giving. And then there's one final kind of category of obstacle that comes out of our hearts. And it's the category of mistrust. It's not just mistrust of God to provide for us, though that can certainly happen. It can also be a mistrust of organizations that we might give to or might think about giving to because we have been so hurt or we've grown so jaded by scandals or horror stories that we have heard about churches, organizations, leaders not spending money well. Well, mistrust can definitely be earned by organizations and by individual people. And perhaps there are good lessons for us to remember uh, for our giving from those stories. But if we allow those instances to dampen our generosity, that's our fault. It's not theirs. The call to generosity is a call to overcome mistrust in our own hearts and to give as God has given to us. Now, it would be really discouraging to end on just a whole series of obstacles there. So we're not. Uh, We see this beautiful vision in Acts chapter 4, but we might feel... Like those qualities of true generosity, they're just not there for us. Or maybe a lot of those obstacles to generosity, they really are, and and we just can't get past them. So what's the answer to that? How, How is this personal transformation going to happen? Where do we find the power for true generosity? Well, like anything else in life following Jesus, we're not going to come by it by just trying harder by just deciding, you know, with our own willpower, mind over matter, that we're going to make it happen. It's not as simple as just give more away. Because remember, true generosity isn't just sacrificial, it's also joyful. It's also Godward and God-directed. So instead of just forcing it through in some way, like the church in Acts 2 and Acts 4, we need to be enamored with Jesus. We need to receive the lavish generosity that he has already given to us. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the gift of his Holy Spirit. It is that gift that actually gives us the power for true generosity. Now, at the same time, even though that is the gift that gives us power, there are disciplines that we can practice that help put us in a posture to keep receiving that gift, and to stay enamored with Jesus. I'm gonna suggest just three practices, and there's one for each of the qualities of true generosity. I am not recommending that you try to, like, start practicing all three of these in your life right now. At the very most, just practice one. Practice the one where maybe you're finding the most challenge to the quality of generosity. The first one is this. If my, if my giving is struggling with being sacrificial, I could practice the gift or the, the, the discipline of simplicity. Simplicity is a spiritual discipline that was around for at least two thousand years before Marie Kondo gussied it all up. Simplicity is just decluttering and disentangling my life from the stuff that fills it, so I can focus on what's important. I can it, it can start as simply as identifying possessions that I can downsize or commitments that I can start to say no to, things that I can turn down and cut out of my life. But then I actually need to follow through on that. I can't just identify those things. I actually have to remove those things and then see what is freed up in my money, in my time, in my emotions. And once I have sacrificially given up that clutter, now I have both the space and a little bit of experience in giving sacrificially to be able to be sacrificial toward other people. So you can see how simplicity leads toward that. That's, that's the first practice that you might have. Second, if my giving is struggling with being joyful, I could practice detachment. Maybe you've heard of this before. Detachment is an old spiritual discipline that means replacing unhealthy ties in my life with a reattachment to God and a deepening trust in him. You could also think of this discipline as sort of an idol hunting, identifying and then confessing and repenting of whatever things are taking priority in my life over God. There will be something to let go of in this practice. There will be a desire for control or the perfect image that you want to maintain or the need to win at all costs, whatever. I mean, the the things are very wide and various that you can find to give up. But with those ties being severed and your life increasingly attached to Jesus, your capacity for joy is going to increase. And that means that your generosity can increase too. And third, if my giving is struggling with being Godward or God directed, I could practice the discipline of hiddenness. Some people have called this secrecy. I call it hiddenness because we're not trying to keep secrets from people. The idea here is that we're just trying to live more anonymously. It doesn't mean that you withdraw from the world. It, it's really quite the opposite of that. And it actually means being out there in the world, being with people, but not taking credit, not drawing attention to myself. It can look like finding acts of service, small or large, that I don't get recognized for. I do them, but I can stay in the background and I don't need the praise. It can look like refraining from the compulsion to tell all the information that I know because doing that would, make, that would make me feel more important. It could look like me celebrating the achievements of others without needing to point to my own. When we're no longer looking for others to notice our generosity, we are finally freed up to direct our giving, our generosity, fundamentally to God and not to other people. We've barely had time to talk about those practices, there's so much more that we could say. So, if you would like to learn more, I I wanna recommend a starting place for that. One of the absolute best books that I found on spiritual disciplines, uh, many many of you know of it already, uh, is a book called The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook by Adele Calhoun. It gives pretty short descriptions of more than 60 different spiritual disciplines, most of which have been practiced by Christians for centuries. And simplicity, detachment, hiddenness, she calls it secrecy, they're all in there. And it can give you more material to start with. Now, in the end, none of these practices themselves bring about true generosity. They do not have the power to transform us. At their best, they can help us to get our lives into a posture to receive the power that we need from God. Ultimately, the power, that, the power to live with true generosity comes from the generosity of God himself. From our standing in awe of his reckless, unhindered, lavish generosity toward us, from the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, from the empowering gift of his Holy Spirit, that power comes not just from acknowledging those things or even by being kind of, amazed by those things, the power comes from receiving those things, receiving the gift that has been generously given to us. There is an invitation to every single one of us who wants to live with true generosity. First, come and receive God's love and his welcome to you through Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we really do stand in awe of how generous, lavishly, extravagantly generous you have been with us. We thank you that you gave the very best that you had, your own son, Jesus, for our sake. We didn't deserve him. You gave him because you love us. And Jesus, out of your faithfulness and your generosity, you gave your life. So Lord, would we stand in awe of that, but would we also receive that day by day in faith, coming to you and recognizing that we need your generosity. And as we receive that in our lives, help us to turn it out to others. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.